Why read Blake today? Why read Blake today? Yeah. Well, because he's one of the half dozen people in the world who makes sense to read. That was Northrop Fry. I'm Lister Sinclair, and this is Ideas on the Poetry, the Painting, and the Prophecy of William Blake. Blake was the first poet of English literature, and as far as I know, the first person in the modern world who uh, not only had revolutionary ideas, but realized that the whole mythical structure of the universe that man had been using for a couple of thousand years had had it, and we needed another one. I am inspired. I know it is truth, for I sing according to the inspiration of the poetic genius, who is the eternal, all-protecting, divine humanity, to whom be glory and power and dominion evermore. Amen. He was a visionary. He had this gift. That was his genius. Bring me my bow of burning gold. Bring me my arrows of desire. Bring me my spear, all clouds unfold. Bring me my chariot. William Blake was born in London in 1757 and lived there for all but three of the 70 years of his life. He was a prophet, a voice crying in the wilderness, a man who hated everything that his age revered, reason, nature, science, morality. To Blake they were all false gods. The truth lay within, in the imagination and not in the clockwork universe and clockmaker god whom he thought his contemporaries worshipped. Trembling I sit day and night. My friends are astonished at me, yet they forgive my wanderings. I rest not from my great task. To open the eternal worlds, to open the immortal eyes of man inwards into the worlds of thought, into eternity ever-expanding in the bosom of God, the human imagination. During his lifetime, William Blake was poor and neglected. A few friends saw his genius, a few loyal patrons acquired his original works, but most people found him eccentric and a few thought him mad. He was happy nonetheless and a watcher at his bedside reported that he died singing of the things he could see in heaven. Today, people flock to exhibitions of his paintings. His lyrics are among the best loved in all of English poetry, and scholars and disciples alike pore eagerly over his longer prophetic books. One of those who did appreciate Blake's genius while he was alive was Samuel Palmer, 
Palmer was one of a group of younger painters self-styled the Ancients. They were united in their veneration for Blake and often visited him during the last years of his life in the 1820s. Thirty years later, Palmer set down this reminiscence for Blake's Victorian biographer, Alexander Gilchrist. Blake, once known, could never be forgotten. In him you saw at once the maker, the inventor, one of the few in any age. He was energy itself and shed around him a kindling influence, an atmosphere of life full of the ideal. He was a man without a mask, his aim single, his path straightforwards, and his wants few. So he was free, noble, and happy. Such was Blake as I remember him. He was one of the few to be met with in our passage through life who are not in some way or other double-minded and inconsistent with themselves. His eye was the finest I ever saw, brilliant but not roving, clear and intent yet susceptible, flashed with genius, melted in death. William Blake, Prophet of a New Age, is the first of three ideas programs. The series is written and presented by David Cayley. There is a story that William Blake once found himself out at dinner amongst people of a scientific turn of mind. They were talking about the incredible distance between the planets, the time light takes to reach the Earth, and so on. "'Tis false," burst out Blake. I was walking down a lane the other day, and at the end of it I touched the sky with my stick. On another occasion he went further and told the diarist Crab Robinson that he believed the Earth to be flat. He meant, of course, that we experience it as flat, and it irked him that people were so willing to substitute abstract schemes for their own experience. Blake always preferred experience to abstraction, and it put him very much at odds with the natural religion and natural philosophy of his day. He lived during the Enlightenment, when science was in its springtime, and Isaac Newton was England's great culture hero. But Blake, in one of his poems, casts Newton as the Antichrist and has him blowing the trumpet of doom. To Blake, Newton's vision of a uniform and continuous time and space, governed by uniform laws, was a tyranny of abstract reason over a concrete human experience. Blake didn't get much of a hearing in his own day, but now that science has unexpectedly invented the apocalypse, we have better reason to listen. We can see how the power of abstract, externalized systems has pushed life to the edge of extinction. And that, says British poet Kathleen Rain, is what concerned Blake. Blake simply wished to say that the premises of materialism are false. It externalizes, it divides the inner from the outer. The Renaissance was still talking about Unus Mundus, in which the inner and outer worlds were in some mysterious living harmony. Blake uses the phrase wrenching apart, the wrenching apart of the inner and the outer world, through which the nature becomes an externalized, lifeless mechanism outside man, and man himself becomes a mortal worm, a little groveling root within that great 
lifeless, inhuman structure of matter. Now, for Blake, both the outer world of nature and the inner world of man is one living universe. What we call nature is, in fact, an experience and not uh, a structure external to consciousness. Mental things are alone real. What is called corporeal, nobody knows of its dwelling place. It is in fallacy and its existence an imposture. Where is the existence, out of mind or thought? Where is it but in the mind of a fool? I assert for myself that I do not behold the outward creation and that to me it is hindrance and not action. It is as the dirt upon my feet, no part of me. What, it will be questioned, when the sun rises, do you not see a round disk of fire, somewhat like a guinea? Oh, no, no. I see an innumerable company of the heavenly host crying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. I question not my corporeal or my vegetative eye any more than I would question a window concerning a sight. I look through it and not with it. The real conventionally means what uh, is out there and therefore can't be changed. University of Toronto professor Northrop Fry, whose book Fearful Symmetry set the standard in Blake criticism. But 90% of our encounter with reality is an encounter with human rubbish, with what man has already made and has no longer much use for. And Blake, like Vico in Italy before him, is saying... Reality is what you make, and you can't understand what you haven't made. William Blake grew up in Golden Square in central London, one of five children. His father was a hosier, a small shopkeeper who sold stockings and gloves. He never went to school and never regretted it. Years later, he exulted in his notebook, Thank God I was never sent to school to be flogged into following the style of a fool. Central London in those days was still within reach of open countryside, and young William apparently roamed at will. It was on one such ramble, says his biographer Alexander Gilchrist, that he saw his first vision. Sauntering along, writes Gilchrist, the boy looked up and saw a tree full of angels, bright, angelic wings bespangling every bough like stars. Blake, by this time, was eagerly pursuing his own education in art. He frequented the shops of the print dealers and the sales of the auctioneers in search of copies of the works of Raphael, Durer, and Michelangelo. One auctioneer, Abraham Langford, was so impressed by Blake's precociously discriminating taste that he called him his little connoisseur. His parents must have supported his interest because they gave him money to buy prints and at age 10 sent him to drawing school. When it came to a choice of career for Blake, his family faced a problem. His aptitude for art was obvious, 
but becoming a painter would involve a long and expensive training beyond his father's means. So he was apprenticed in the humbler craft of engraving instead. This indenture witnesses that William Blake, the son of James of Broad Street Carnaby Market, Hosier, doth put himself apprentice to James Bazar of Great Queen Street, Lincoln's Inn Fields, engraver, citizen and stationer of London, to learn his art. And with him to serve for seven years, during which term the apprentice, his master faithfully shall serve, his secrets keep, his lawful commandments everywhere gladly do. He shall not commit fornication, nor contract matrimony within the said term. He shall not haunt taverns or playhouses. Engraving in Blake's day was mainly a way of reproducing artworks rather than creating them, the kind of copying which today is done by photography. His master Bazar's specialty was antiquities, and Blake was sent to make drawings of various monuments in Westminster Abbey. This kindled in him a lifelong love of the Gothic, and the ancient, empty church also proved hospitable to his visions. Once, says Gilchrist, the aisles and galleries suddenly filled with a great procession of monks and priests, choristers and censer-bearers, and his entranced ear heard the chant of plain song. On another occasion, he saw a vision of Christ and his apostles. His seven-year apprenticeship with Bazar completed, Blake studied briefly at the Royal Academy schools and then set up as a commercial engraver. It was mechanical work, reproductive engraving, but it gave Blake a certain independence, and thus, says David Bindman, a certain imaginative freedom. Professor Bindman teaches at the University of London and was curator of the Big Blake exhibition in Toronto in 1982. The way I, I see it anyway is that Blake felt that because he was his living came from engraving, and this was fairly steady and assured, he could then, uh, his imaginative work was no longer dependent on patrons. And this, I think, is a clear difference between Blake and most other artists at the time, that he doesn't feel himself to be dependent on selling his works of art for a living. And so he doesn't feel that he has to get into this, all the kind of compromises that, say, uh, a portrait painter would have to get into. And he doesn't need, in a sense, to establish himself professionally as an artist because he has a, a living assured from his engraving. And this, I think, at least, it doesn't account for it, but does provide the basis for a lot of the imaginative freedom in Blake is this fact that it's, he can allow his imagination to run free. Blake was an artist of great imaginative freedom and terrific imaginative force. But fantastic though much of his work is, he was also completely rooted in his own time and place, a working engraver deeply concerned with the social and political worlds around him. He was a Londoner, a human awful wonder of God, he calls London in one of his poems. It was a city of harsh poverty, and for much of his life a city at war, first with America, then with France. He felt the sufferings of his fellow citizens, and he expressed these feelings in many of his poems, like these two from the Songs of Experience, the first simply called London, the second the Chimney Sweeper. I wander through each chartered street near where the chartered Thames does flow, and mark in every face I meet marks of weakness, marks of woe. 
In every cry of every man, in every infant's cry of fear, in every voice, in every ban, the mind-forged manacles I hear. How the chimney sweepers cry, every blackening church appalls, and the hapless soldier's sigh runs in blood down palace walls. But most through midnight streets I hear how the youthful harlot's curse blasts the newborn infant's tear and blights with plagues the marriage hearse. A little black thing among the snow, crying weep, weep in notes of woe. Where are thy mother and father? Say. They are both gone up to the church to pray. Because I was happy upon the heath and smiled among the winter's snow, they clothed me in the clothes of death and taught me to sing the notes of woe. And because I am happy and dance and sing, they think they have done me no injury and are gone to praise God and his priest and king who make up a heaven of our misery. Blake was married in Battersea Church on August 18, 1782. His bride was Catherine Boucher, and how they met was described by Frederick Tatum, who knew the Blakes in the last years of their lives. In his 24th year, he fell in love with a young woman. He wanted to marry her, but she refused and was as obstinate as she was unkind. He became ill and went to Kew near Richmond for a change of air and renovation of health and spirits and lodged at the house of a market gardener whose name was Boucher. The Bouchers appear to have been a respectable and industrious family. He was relating to the daughter, a girl named Catherine, the lamentable story of Polly Wood, his implacable lass, upon which Catherine expressed her deep sympathy. It is supposed in such a tender and affectionate manner that it quite won him. He immediately said with the suddenness peculiar to him, Do you pity me? Yes, indeed I do, answered she. Then I love you, said he again. Such was their courtship. She creates at her will a little moony night and silence with spaces of sweet gardens and a tent of elegant beauty closed in by a sandy desert and a night of stars shining and a little tender moon and hovering angels on the wing. And the male gives a time and revolution to her space till the time of love is passed in ever-varying delights. She must have been one of the most self-sacrificing, devoted wives there's ever been. This is Professor Gerald Bentley of the University of Toronto, a lifelong Blake scholar. I think he probably needed such a wife as this. We know very little about her. She is uh, probably, she was uh, illiterate when they were married. Her father was a market gardener. We know scarcely anything about her family either. They are uh, probably very poor. Uh, they probably 
Some of them may have died in workhouses. Their context is exceedingly humble, much humbler than Blake's is. And Blake was lifting her socially enormously in the world. Almost everything we know about her is an echo of Blake in some way or other. She is a shadow behind Blake. In fact, Blake referred to her as his shadow. Her self-sacrifice for him must have been enormous. My impression is she didn't think of it as self-sacrifice. She thought of it as natural. And if one lives in close proximity to what is either a madman or a genius, you've got to um, minimize your own character in order to make it possible to live with him. She clearly loved him. She clearly thought that he was a genius. He told her so. She had visions. They told her so as well. For most of the century and a half since his death, Blake has been thought of as a kind of burning amateur, a wild, untutored genius without much formal learning or technical skill who dredged his visions whole from his unconscious. T.S. Eliot, the great lion of earlier 20th century critics, snootily described him as a man of mean culture. Contemporary scholarship has made it clear just how wrong-headed this view is. Blake was unschooled, but he was an avid and omnivorous reader. He drew his philosophy from sources as diverse as Norse mythology, Gnosticism, and left-wing Protestantism. He was also strongly influenced by Platonism, which he may have known through the English Platonist Thomas Taylor. Kathleen Rain is the author of a two-volume study of Blake's sources called Blake and Tradition. When the book was published, academic Blake scholars criticized some of her more conjectural arguments. But in the case of Blake's connection to Thomas Taylor, subsequent research has borne her out. When I published my book, people said, oh, Kathleen has absolutely no evidence, although they were living practically next door to one another, that they ever met. But in fact, that evidence has come to light. It was a Canadian scholar called King who turned it up. The description is of Blake at Thomas Taylor's house. Thomas Taylor was laboriously expounding to Blake the theorem Pythagoras. And Blake was saying, never mind the proofs, I can see it for myself with my own eyes. <laughs> so they certainly did know one another. And uh, furthermore, Taylor gave 12 lectures on the Platonic uh, philosophy at the house of Flaxman, who was Blake's closest friend and a fellow Swedenborgian. Of course they knew one another. Blake generally took what he wanted from his sources and threw the rest away. Platonism he found congenial because it made a kind of imaginative sense to him. In eternity, Blake writes, there exists the permanent reality of everything which we see reflected in this vegetable glass of nature. Exactly what Plato says. But he also found Platonism remote and abstract. God is not a mathematical diagram, Blake says tartly. And most of his comments on Plato that have come down to us are harsh. It's the same with his contemporary, Emanuel Swedenborg, a man to whom Blake probably owes much more. Blake learned from him and then satirized and rejected him. Swedenborg was a scientist and the assessor of minerals for the Swedish government when he experienced a sudden conversion an enlightenment in which he foresaw the transformation of Christianity from an exterior to an interior religion. This universal spiritual Christianity was the sign of a new age, an age which Swedenborg said had already begun. 
in 1757. Blake was born in that year, 1757, and it's quite conceivable that Blake's family already were Swedenborgians. He died in London when Blake was in his teens, 15 or 16, and he may even have known of him then. But at, at all events, Blake, at a quite young age, was associated with the Swedenborg Society, entirely accepted the prophecy that a new age was beginning in the world, which was to see a birth of the true interior spiritual Christianity. And I think Swedenborg's greatest vision was of what he calls the grand man of the heavens, that is, the universal Christ, who is made up of innumerable multitudes of human souls and not a single historical individual. And some of his descriptions of the vision of the grand man of the heavens are indeed extremely fine. This had a great effect on Blake. And for him also, uh, the figure of Jesus was Jesus the imagination, that is to say, the inner spiritual, uh, the God within all humanity. And for him, that was the foundation of the new age which was to see not a single saviour who is a historical figure, but an interiorization of the eternal Christ to be manifested in all humankind. While Blake was absorbing the ideas of Swedenborg, he was also refining his craft, Engraving with artists like Dürer or Rembrandt had been a creative medium. By Blake's time, it had become almost entirely a means of reproduction. Blake revived it as an art by inventing the technique he called illuminated printing. This was a form of relief etching which enabled him to combine text and design on one copper plate. It was a breakthrough for Blake, says David Bindman, in more than just a technical sense. And what Blake was really after, I think, was not uh, simply a technique, but actually a method of self-publication. He wanted to control the whole process from the beginning, so that every book that he produced and every copy of a book was actually came out of his own studio. And that's the main innovation. Uh, and his, and he, out of that, he produced these series of books, the most famous being Songs of Innocence uh, and the Songs of Experience, and a group of prophetic works culminating in the great work Jerusalem. And uh, the point about these, and this is something that's, I think, often not realized, but uh, almost every single word that Blake wrote in his lifetime, that was actually published in his lifetime, was published in the form of an illuminated text. So there's every reason to think that at no point did he think of the text as existing on its own, apart from the illuminations. Uh, the Songs of Experience, even Tiger, Tiger, Burning Bright, all the most famous of those poems were conceived from the very beginning as part of an illuminated page. Uh, and so you've got the tiger there. It's actually Blake's illustration of the tiger. It, the, the poem doesn't and never was intended, as far as we know, to exist in any other form. The invention of illuminated printing signaled the beginning of an extraordinary creative explosion in Blake's life. Between 1789 and 1795, Blake engraved 12 illuminated books, as well as executing an equally remarkable series of paintings. The first works to be engraved were, characteristically, manifestos, entitled 
all religions are one and there is no natural religion. In them, he states the essence of his mature philosophy, that only imagination can reveal the truth. It can never be deduced from nature. And that's why there is no natural religion. Man's perceptions are not bounded by organs of perception. He perceives more than sense can discover. Reason, or the ratio of all we have already known, is not the same that it shall be when we know more. The bounded is loathed by its possessor. The same dull round even of a universe would soon become a mill with complicated wheels. If any could desire what he is incapable of possessing, despair must be his eternal lot. The desire of man being infinite, the possession is infinite and himself infinite. He who sees the infinite in all things sees God. He who sees the ratio only sees himself only. Therefore God becomes as we are, that we may be as he is. Northrop Fry. By natural religion he means the religion that we derive from the sense of design in nature. The sense of design in nature is something we've already put there as a mental construct, so that we're really staring in a mirror like Narcissus. And in other words, we get nothing from nature, the, the passive contemplation of the world. All real knowledge and understanding is created. That is, it's something that's an activity in man himself. So all religion is revealed by the imagination. Following There Is No Natural Religion, Blake began illuminating his poems. First, a lovely longer poem called Fell, and then the Songs of Innocence. Five years later, he published the Songs of Experience and united the two works as one. It contains some of Blake's most beautiful and best-known poems, the short, crystalline lyrics for which he had such a genius. During his life, the book was in much greater demand than his other works, and far more copies of it are extant than of the other illuminated books. The archetypes of the states of innocence and experience are the tiger and the lamb. Little lamb who made thee, dost thou know who made thee? Gave thee life and bid thee feed by the stream and o'er the mead? Gave thee clothing of delight, softest clothing, woolly bright? Gave thee such a tender voice, making all the vales rejoice? Little lamb who made thee, dost thou know who made thee? Little lamb, I'll tell thee, little lamb, I'll tell thee. He is called by thy name, for he calls himself a lamb. He is meek and he is mild, he became a little child. I a child and thou a lamb, we are called by his name. Little lamb, God bless thee. Little lamb, God bless thee. Tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forests of the night, what immortal hand or eye could frame thy fearful symmetry? In what distant deeps or skies burnt the fire of thine eyes? On what wings dare he aspire? What the hand dare seize the fire? 
and what shoulder and what art could twist the sinews of thy heart? And when thy heart began to beat, what dread hand and what dread feet? What the hammer, what the chain, in what furnace was thy brain? What the anvil, what dread grasp dare its deadly terrors clasp? When the stars threw down their spears and watered heaven with their tears, did he smile his work to see? Did he who made the lamb make thee? Tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forests of the night, what immortal hand or eye dare frame thy fearful symmetry? I went to the garden of love and saw what I never had seen. A chapel was built in the midst, where I used to play on the green. And the gates of this chapel were shut, and thou shalt not writ over the door. So I turned to the garden of love that so many sweet flowers bore. And I saw it was filled with graves and tombstones where flowers should be. And priests in black gowns were walking their rounds and binding with briars my joys and desires. Well, innocence is associated with childhood, not because the child is morally good, but because the child is civilized. That is, he believes that the world makes sense and was created very largely for his benefit and his happiness. Experience comes when you're older and you realize that that isn't true. So what happens to the child's innocent vision is that it gets driven underground into what we now call the subconscious. And there it becomes the bound orc, the sexual energy that's repressed and uh, keeps thrashing around trying to get free. Freud discovered that 200 years after Blake discovered it. My mother groaned, my father wept. Into the dangerous world I leapt. Helpless, naked, piping loud, like a fiend hid in a cloud. Struggling in my father's hands, striving against my swaddling bands. Bound and weary, I thought best to sulk upon my mother's breast. Two short stanzas, but they really are Freud in a nutshell. Innocence and experience are contrary states of the soul, and Blake at this time thought in contraries. Innocence and experience, reason and energy, heaven and hell. Without contraries, he says, there is no progression. These opposites, in other words, must be held together and not allowed to fall apart into false dichotomies. Holding contraries together is the theme of the marriage of heaven and hell, which Blake engraved in 1790. The work is a satire, and its hell and its devils are intended ironically. Hell is the fallen energy of innocence, and heaven the devitalized reason which is all that is left of goodness when energy falls into hell. The target of the satire is Emanuel Swedenborg, with whom Blake now made his differences known. What he objected to was Swedenborg's conventional morality, with its absolute distinction between good and evil. To Blake, 
Morality was always an imposition on our spontaneous energies. Swedenborg, he says, conversed only with angels. And so, tongue firmly in cheek, Blake resolves to go to hell and talk with the devils. As I was walking among the fires of hell, delighted with the enjoyments of genius, which to angels looked like torment and insanity, I collected some of their proverbs. Thinking that as the sayings used in a nation mark its character, so the proverbs of hell show the nature of infernal wisdom better than any description of buildings or garments. Prudence is a rich, ugly old maid courted by incapacity. The road of excess leads to the palace of wisdom. He who desires but acts not breeds pestilence. If the fool would persist in his folly, he would become wise. The tigers of wrath are wiser than the horses of instruction. Prisons are built with the stones of law, brothels with the bricks of religion. The pride of the peacock is the glory of God. The lust of the goat is the bounty of God. The wrath of the lion is the wisdom of God. The nakedness of woman is the work of God. Sooner murder an infant in his cradle than nurse unacted desires. The ancient tradition that the world will be consumed in fire at the end of 6,000 years is true, as I have heard from hell. For the cherub with his flaming sword is hereby commanded to leave his guard at the tree of life, and when he does, the whole creation will be consumed and appear infinite and holy, whereas it now appears finite and corrupt. This will come to pass by an improvement of sensual enjoyment. But first, the notion that man has a body distinct from his soul is to be expunged. This I shall do by printing in the infernal method, by corrosives, which in hell are salutary and medicinal, melting apparent surfaces away and displaying the infinite which was hid. If the doors of perception were cleansed, everything would appear to man as it is, infinite. For man has closed himself up till he sees all things through narrow chinks of his cavern. Once I saw a devil in a flame of fire, who arose before an angel that sat on a cloud, and the devil uttered these words. The worship of God is honouring his gifts in other men, each according to his genius, and loving the greatest men best. Those who envy or calumniate great men hate God, for there is no other God. The angel, hearing this, became almost blue, but, mastering himself, he grew yellow, and at last white, pink, and smiling, and then replied, Thou idolater, is not God one? And is not he visible in Jesus Christ? And has not Jesus Christ given his sanction to the law of ten commandments? And are not all other men fools, sinners, and nothings? The devil answered, 
If Jesus Christ is the greatest man, you ought to love him in the greatest degree. Now hear how he has given his sanction to the law of ten commandments. Did he not mock at the Sabbath, and so mock the Sabbath's God? Murder those who were murdered because of him? Turn away the law from the woman taken in adultery? Steal the labour of others to support him? Bear false witness when he omitted making a defence before Pilate? Covet when he prayed for his disciples, and when he bid them shake off the dust of their feet against such as refused to lodge them? Oh, I tell you, no virtue can exist without breaking these ten commandments. Jesus was all virtue, and acted from impulse, not from rules. When he had so spoken, I beheld the angel who stretched out his arms, embracing the flame of fire, and he was consumed and arose as Elijah. Note, this angel, who is now become a devil, is my particular friend. We often read the Bible together in its infernal or diabolical sense, which the world shall have if they behave well. I have also the Bible of hell, which the world shall have whether they will or not. One law for the lion and ox is oppression. Blake pursued his vision conscientiously, believing that morality is repression, energy eternal delight, and revelation the result of an improvement in sensual enjoyment. He was led to declare in favor of free love. The doors of marriage are open, he says in his poem America, and his visions of the daughters of Albion is a hymn to liberated desire. Here, once again, religion is identified with repression, the self-enjoyings of self-denial, the horrible darkness impressed with the reflections of desire. And the poem ends with an ecstatic vision of erotic freedom. Take thy bliss, O man, and sweet shall be thy taste, and sweet thy infant joys renew. I cry love, 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 Happy, happy love, free as the mountain wind. Arise, you little glancing wings, and sing your infant joy. Arise and drink your bliss, for everything that lives is holy. It isn't only that he flirted with ideas of free love, he most conscientiously held, as a matter of principle, uh, the idea of free love. And this, in fact, was part of the Swedenborgian teaching, that uh, it was uh, permissible for men to have, as Blake called them, handmaidens, in the sense of the Old Testament patriarchs. And Blake held this view fervently to the end of his life. There's a very amusing passage in his interview with Crabb Robinson in which Blake defends this idea and says, of course, free love is the ideal relationship between man and woman, and said, if my wife wished to have a lover, I wouldn't stand in her way, would I, Mrs. Blake? And she said dutifully, no, Mr. Blake, of course not, never having looked at another man. <laughs> 
It was a matter of principle with Blake, but not, I think, of practice, because the story is that he did propose at a certain point in their early marriage to bring a handmaiden into the family, but Mrs. Blake cried, and so he said, no, all right, of course he wouldn't. If it made her cry, he wouldn't dream of it. So, you see, you are here dealing with a man who could see that in the world of eternity, the legal bonds on people, the the legality of marriage, should not be, and that people should be held together by love and not by legality. You can see that this would be a principle with Blake, and in the visions of the Daughters of Albion is an attack on the marriage bond. And I think there again, Mary Wollstonecraft was was one of the influences because she very much held and practiced this view. She was, of course, a follower of Rousseau. And uh, I think probably a lot went on in the Blake circle, which we no longer know about. The times were revolutionary. The outbreak of revolution in France in 1789 had galvanized radical and republican sympathies in England. Blake, according to legend, openly wore the cap of liberty in the streets of London. He saw the revolution apocalyptically as a harbinger of a total change in human life, and he welcomed it. Abandoning illuminated printing for the moment, he had the first book of an epic poem called The French Revolution typeset by his friend Joseph Johnson, the publisher. It was never published, perhaps because of Johnson's fear of political persecution. He withdrew Tom Paine's Rights of Man at the same time. But two years later, Blake created another revolutionary poem in the form of an illuminated book called America. It tells of Orc, the red, rising young god of revolution, and of Urizen, the hoary old god of reason. It's a pun, your reason, against whom Orc rebels. Red rose the clouds from the Atlantic in vast wheels of blood. And in the red clouds rose a wonder o'er the Atlantic sea. Intense, naked, a human fire fierce glowing as the wedge of iron heated in the furnace. His terrible limbs were fire with myriads of cloudy terrors. Heat but not light went through the murky atmosphere. The King of England, looking westward, trembles at the vision. Orc is the youthful and rebellious energy which can be made constructive instead of destructive because it's a sexual energy mm -hmm. and there are ways of channeling it so that it isn't stifled or suppressed. When it's stifled or suppressed, it gets very dangerous. And uh, urism is the capacity for wisdom and experience, which can get perverted into authoritarianism. And is there an interrelation between orc and urism? Well, really all young people are orcs and all old people are urisons. These, uh, these characters are states, as he calls them, states of the human mind, and we spend all our time being in, in one state or another. Art thou not orc, blasphemous demon, antichrist, hater of dignities, 
lover of wild rebellion and transgressor of God's law? Why dost thou come to angels' eyes in this terrific form? The terror answered, I am, Orc, wreathed round the accursed tree. The times are ended. The fiery joy that you reason perverted to ten commands, what night he led the starry hosts through the wide wilderness. That stony law I stamp to dust and scatter religion abroad to the four winds as a torn book, and none shall gather the leaves, but they shall rot on desert sands and consume in bottomless deeps to make the deserts blossom and the deeps shrink to their fountains and to renew the fiery joy and burst the stony roof. For everything that lives is holy. Life delights in life, because the soul of sweet delight can never be defiled. What did he see in, in the revolutions in, in America and France? He saw two things in the revolutionary activities of his time. One is the sudden awakening to the fact that man has been playing a damn silly game over the centuries and that he doesn't have to go on playing it. He can kick over the table and spread the pieces over the floor and go on with something else. On the other hand, he also saw a cyclical movement where a revolution consolidates power by going back to what it was in the first place. And that was what he saw in France when it went from the destroying of the Bastille to Napoleon, and what he saw in the United States when it kept on owing, owning slaves and keeping on with an oligarchic economy. The hand of vengeance found the bed to which the purple tyrant fled. The iron hand crushed the tyrant's head and became a tyrant in his stead. As he grew older, Blake's view of revolution matured, though he certainly never changed his direction or abandoned his apocalyptic hopes. Next week, we'll examine the changes in Blake's life and work as the revolutionary mood in England faded, and we'll follow the development of his prophetic books to their crowning glory the epics Milton and Jerusalem. This program concludes with a final passage from America, a passage that captures Blake's deep feeling for freedom. The morning comes, the night decays, the watchmen leave their stations. The grave is burst, the spices shed, the linens wrapped up. The bones of death, the covering clay, the sinews shrunk and dried, Reviving shake, inspiring move, breathing, awakening. Spring like redeemed captives when their bonds and bars are burst. Let the slave grinding at the mill run out into the field. Let him look up into the heavens and laugh in the bright air. Let the in-chained soul shut up in darkness and in sighing, whose face has never seen a smile in thirty weary years, rise and look out. His chains are loose. His dungeon doors are open, and let his wife and children return from the oppressor's scourge. They look behind at every step and believe it is a dream, singing. The sun has left his blackness and has found a fresher morning, and the fair moon rejoices in the clear and cloudless night, for empire is no more.
On Ideas, William Blake, Prophet of a New Age, Part One. It was written and presented by David Cayley. Readings from Blake's works were by Barry McGregor, other readings by Gilly Fennick. The series was produced by Damiano Pietropaolo, with assistance by Alison Moss. Technical Operations, Lawn Tuck. If you'd like a free reading list for this series, write to us at Ideas, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6. And to order a printed transcript, send a cheque or money order for $5 or $15 for the whole series to Ideas Transcripts, Blake, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6. And please allow six to eight weeks for delivery. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Lister Sinclair.